Ron Stallworth calling. Well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish, Italians, and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel, editor of electric-shadows.com. As always, I'm very happy to say I'm joined by my learned and esteemed co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. It's been a bit of a bit of a while since the last one. Absolute apologies for those out there who do actually listen to our podcast. Yes, Fallout was the last one we did, which was the end of July. So we are about five weeks, if not a bit more, without a podcast. So um, can only apologise for that. August was quite busy, wasn't it? <laughs> and, um, yeah, we, uh, we had various things. Uh... Various things to do. And I think there was one time we were going to do the podcast, but I'd fucked up or something and had an double That sounds imminently possible. Basically, I'll just take the hit on this one. I fucked up, and that's why we are now only doing... We're only doing the episode now, when it should have been done during August. At least in August. At least, if, if not two in August. We have denied our listenership two podcasts. Amazing. And shit. I'm sorry. Well, you know, at least, uh, at least we have... Two, at least we've got... Plenty to talk about in this one. It is a bumper episode, but shall we get the plugs out the way first? Oh, yes. Um, Well, you can find my writing at uh, www.ofallthefilmsites.com or follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. I also have a Facebook group under Of All The Film Sites and everything sort of circles between those three things. Cool. And yes, and they're all well worth looking out for. You can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, Stitcher, and there was another one that we signed up for, and I can't remember what it was, but we're on that as well. Pocket Cast. And presumably you found it on one of those already, otherwise this is just in your head, in which case... Or they could be listening to it in a car because a friend has put it on, and they're thinking, oh, this is all right. I'm sure they're thinking that. How come I find It's in your head. Only you can hear this. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> anyway, so we are coming up for three minutes in, uh, so let's get on to what we're going to be talking about. This is quite a bumper one, so we are going to be talking about Fright Fest, the horror film festival that happened over the August bank holiday weekend, and we will then have a general roundup of all the films that we, and by we I mean mainly Rob, has seen throughout August, and then we will be moving on to what we think is going to be good or interesting 
at the London Film Festival this year. So, without further ado, let's get on to Fright Fest. Those who know me know that I love my horror films, and I love my Fright Fest. And this year was the 19th year of Fright Fest, and I have to say it was it was very good in terms of the amount of films they had there. You know, sometimes it's going to be hit and miss in terms of what's happening on the horror scene. This year was very interesting in terms of what's happening on the horror scene. So it was a really good Fright Fest. So our friend Ben decided to get married in Stockholm over Fright Fest weekend and he invited us, which was lovely, wasn't it? It was absolutely wonderful. So we went to Stockholm when Fright Fest weekend was on, <laughs> which meant that I had to speak to lots of the the PR companies to see if I could get screening links for the films and ironically even though I didn't go to a single day of Fright Fest this year I covered it for the site Electric Shadows as thoroughly if not more thoroughly than any other Fright Fest I've ever done because I got sent quite a lot of the festival over screening links and stuff and also had the opportunity to talk to some of the the directors which was uh, really good. So cheers for that Ben because I probably wouldn't have chased it down as much if uh, if I had just gone to Fright Fest. No, uh, you produced uh, some really good content, um, especially a couple of your of your interviews. Do you particularly mean the cleaning lady one? The, oh yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the world class cleaning lady interview. Um, no, I particularly meant the one with Sam Ashurst. Yes, indeed. So, uh, so Sam Ashurst, who is a film critic and a film director, and he also does the Arrow Video podcast, which is well worth a listen if you haven't heard it yet was good enough to give me an hour of his time on a Saturday afternoon to talk about his film Frankenstein's Creature, which is his debut and I thought was very interesting indeed and really good and was a great film to talk about. Yeah, so Frankenstein's Creature hasn't got a distributor yet. Hopefully it will have one soon so you can see it as well because I thought it was one of the best films that played at Fright Fest this year. Other films that played at Fright Fest this year that I think you should check out are... What else did I see? One Cut of the Dead which is a Japanese zombie film, but is much more interesting than that, and is kind of a peon to filmmaking, and to the collective effort that it takes to get a film made, is well worth the go, and was so popular at Fright Fest, they had to put on a third screening, because the first two sold out, and everyone was saying, oh, I can't see this film, and apparently it's the best film of the festival, etc. So, uh, yeah, One Cut of the Dead, and I think that Third Window Films are releasing that, so, yeah, keep an eye out for that. Um, Other ones that I liked are there was the night sitter which was a babysitter one which was very good it was like an homage to Dario Argento speaking of Dario Argento there was an Argentinian film called Crystal Eyes so Crystal Eyes which was like a Dario Argento film if our mode of art had made it and it was so smart and so good and I think it's it's the debut film no it's it's the second film by the guys who made it, who go by the name of the Toy Boys. And uh, yeah, it's really, really brilliant. So Crystal Eyes should be getting picked up by someone soon, hopefully, because it's really good. And my film of the festival was Incident in a Ghostland, which is directed by Pascal Logier, I think his name is, or Laugier, who did Martyrs and The Tall Man. And Martyrs I saw at Fright Fest 10 years ago. It had a few walkouts. It also had someone who ran out and vomited <laughs> in the foyer. Did they come back in? I don't know if they did. And that was the question I asked. I said, well, did they go back in though? Because, yeah, Martyrs is amazing. It's a five-star film. It's Have you seen Martyrs? I haven't. Have you seen Martyrs? Next time you come around, we'll put Martyrs on. And <laughs> that'll be cheery. Um, there's a bludgeoning in it that when I first saw it, particularly on the big screen at the Odeon West End, as it was then, which has now been knocked down, but had a really, really nice screen and really good sound. And there's a bludgeoning 
that goes on for about 25 minutes. Doesn't It seems to go on for ages. But the sound of it, I thought at the time, this actually is making me feel a bit funny because I really get a sense of someone's head being put in. Yeah, cantaloupes <laughs> were... Yes, indeed, there was... Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the Foley artist right. had a great time on this one. Anyway, apparently during that scene, someone ran out and threw up in the foyer, and uh, yes, I don't know if they went back in. I also saw Martyrs um, a few months later at the press screening, because it got a theatrical release in this country, and there are about 12, it was at the Soho screening rooms, and there were about 12 or 13 of us to begin with, and by the end of the film, there were three of us. Uh, a lot of people walked out, and they were all the big film critics and stuff. Remember, there was one very famous film critic who, there's a, there's a moment of self-harm, and it's quite tough. And she said, that's me done, guys. Have great weekends. And walked out. Well, uh, I saw a film at, I saw one film at Frightfest, at the Frightfest, at the, at the actual festival. I was lucky enough to get a ticket. And it was um, Gaspar Noe's new film. It was Climax. Yes. Uh, which, uh, of course, inspired walkouts at Cannes. I'm guessing there, was, there, was, there were one or two moments, one in particular, that might have done it. Right. The I guess seeing it in, the, people, people like walking out at Cannes, it, Making it's making a statement. Yeah, they like a yes, make a fuss, don't they? Um, but that was it's been described. Uh, the poster quotes are: "It's like fame, uh, directed by the Marquis de Sade with a steady cam, or it's it's a disco, it's disco inferno meets Dante's inferno, which is essentially about um, this a bunch of a, a dance troupe in 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 Paris, uh, staying in this sort of slightly run down." Town hall, town hall with you know with like a hostel attached. Somebody uh, somebody slips LSD in the, into the punch, and they basically all start absolutely freaking out. There's some there's some really extraordinary dance sequences in it. Not usually my thing, but it's shot incredibly well. At least one of the graceful aerial shots, aerial shots of people's bodies contorting, very Dante's Inferno. And it, yeah, it's a, it's a really impressive work of cinema. I like Gaspar Noé's. I'm looking forward to climax. But Incident in the Ghostland, just to finish it off, is about a couple of teenage girls and their mum who move to their dead aunt's house out in the middle of like the Midwest or something like that. It's in, in the plains of America, but shot in Canada. Because it's cheap. Because it's cheap. And also Pascal Logier is French Canadian. And on their first night there, there's a home invasion. It's very, very violent. The film then flashes forwards about a decade or so, and there is one of the sisters has become a famous horror writer, but her other sister can't get over what happened that night and is still at home with her mum. So, so the one sister goes back to see her family uh, to see if she can yeah, lay to rest the ghost of the past. And uh, yes, then the film goes fucking insane. <laughs> and it's not for everyone. I thought it was a five-star film. A lot of people have given it an absolute slamming. Yes, but I think it's well worth a look. And it's currently available on streaming services and on Blu-ray. That's Incident in a Ghostland, my film of Frightfest. And also another quick plug for Frightfest that they are having their Halloween Aldea in London on the 3rd of November. So the weekend after Halloween. Which And they normally have some quite good films there. So yes, we will be doing something about that when we know what those films are. But anyway, Rob, hmm. you saw some films in August. Uh, yes, I think I think there may have been one or two that we both saw. Should we start with uh, the latest Spike Lee joint, Black Klansman? Please do. Um, Black Klansman tells the, well, the based on a real life story of a police officer whose name is currently escaping me. Ron Stallworth. Ron Stallworth. 
as played by John David Washington, the son of uh, Denzel Washington. Indeed. And it's the real life story of how a uh, a black uh, Hawaiian, uh, oh, Hawaiian, Ohio, <laughs> he um, um, police detective managed to. Oh no, not Ohio, Colorado. Managed to infiltrate, well, infiltrate the clan over the phone by posing as like a proud white racist. Yeah, and the film is essentially a look, partly a look, you know, period, sort of stylish, typically sort of smooth for for, for Spike Lee. Um, look at that sort of the that era, but one that feeds really into modern sort of contemporary anxieties surrounding you know the resurgence of white supremacism. It's and it's got Adam Driver in it, who uh, who will we will be discussing again uh, later on. And it's a blast. It's a really funny, interesting, quirky. Again, you know, it's about a black guy who joins the clan, but it has it has a sting in its tail. It doesn't sort of remove even even while it's making fun of these uh, of, of of to a degree of the of the white supremacists. But um, the film at the end it pulls a really neat reversal in terms of reminding, you know, this is actually still a current threat and this this isn't going away and how this, you know, this is still very much out there while also expressing the need for positive pop culture. Pop, you know, positive portrayals of both of both um, African-American black, um, black people and of the police. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I thought it was very good as well. It is one of those... So it's Spike, I think it's Spike Lee's biggest film since Inside Man back in 2006... And I completely agree with you. I thought it was really good. I think it's one of those that it definitely wears its politics on its sleeve in terms of a lot of what the Klansmen say is just taken from Trump's speeches, like America first and make America great Great again. Mm. It's set during the 70s, but there's a lot of hindsight happening in this film where they're talking about if you lay the groundwork for this becoming normalised now then it's going to lead up to this going into the popular discussion, it being accepted by people, it then infiltrating politics. And of course... And there's a very clear path to where it's heading. And uh, David Duke, who was at that point the head of the clan, the uh, the Grand Wizard who had been rebranded... What was the it? National Director. The National Director. Yes. Um, as played in that by Topher Grace, is of course still around. Yeah, so David Duke, who uh, yeah is a, yes, a particularly odious person who said that he tried to rebrand the clan much the same way that Nick Griffith tried to rebrand the BNP as being non-violent professing a to to try and preserve the white heritage and to be all about the pride of white heritage and not being about trying to destroy other cultures of course that's all horseshit the clan was violent and they still are violent and as seen in what happened in Charlottesville they're still incredibly violent yeah, I do like Spike Lee because he will say, I could give you a nuanced debate about this, but this isn't the time for nuanced debates. It's like, this is the time when we have to say, I'm sorry, but it is not right that there are clansmen walking in the streets again. Let's see what this was like before when racism was more tolerated and see how bad it was then and see what we could be returning to now. And I think that's what Black Klansman does really it well. It kind of positions itself in that way as an antidote to kind of the original, the er uh, text as far as all this goes, which is um, Birth of a Nation. As with all the Spike Lee films, there is like kind of a nice history lesson in there. And... The way that pop culture has played a part in normalising racism is, I think, done very well. And Birth of Nations in there. Gone with the Wind. Yes, that's right, yeah. And also exploitation films. They do talk about that and the maybe slightly negative imagery of, of the pimp and stuff like that. The pimp as hero. But it is primarily Birth of Nation because it is 
a glorification of the Klan, and Gone with the Wind because mm, it does have a lot of the Confederate flag in there, doesn't it? And it's said it's not particularly critical. critical. So that's Black Klansman. So to move from very heavyweight material, but I think done with in a very, very accessible way, to something that is just very light and fluffy, Ant-Man and the Wasp. So what was that about? Ant-Man and the Wasp, uh, it's the further adventures of Scott Lang and Hope Van Dyne. And Scott Lang being played by Paul Rudd, uh, Ant-Man, who uh, sat out the event of Avengers Infinity War, uh, which this film is actually set slightly before. Um, he's under house arrest when the film opens after the events of Civil War, uh, until he's essentially forced back into the superheroic fold by Hank Pym, played by Michael Mike Douglas and Hope, who's uh, a.k.a. The Wasp, played by Evangeline Lilly. And after all the heaviness, the emotional sort of weight, or whether or not you think it landed, <laughs> of uh, Infinity War, this is sort of a bit of a, a throwaway romper caper. Things get bigger, things get smaller. I wasn't a big fan. I thought it didn't hold up, hold up particularly well in, uh, in light of the trailer, actually. My thoughts on it was essentially the trailer with the pace taken out. I, I believe you, Rob, felt differently. Yes, I... Not a huge fan of Infinity War because I think the Empire Review for Ant-Man and the Wasp talks about the gut punch at the end of Infinity War. There is no gut punch at the end of Infinity War because they are going to reverse everything. That's a spoiler, but you've seen it by now. It's made over two billion so far, so you've probably seen it by now. You can't get invested when you know that they're going to change it all back. So I actually thought... And I really, really liked the trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp and was really looking forward to seeing it. And then the general consensus was, this isn't actually very good. And it's like, oh. Then I went to see it and was pleasantly surprised because I really enjoyed it. I actually got more emotionally involved in it because I just felt more for the characters than I did for anyone in Infinity War. I think that, what's his name again? Scott Lang, Lang. is as played by Paul Rudd and Hope as played by Evangeline Lang. Lilly. I thought they worked really well together. And I thought that, and I thought it was actually good that they made, because in the first film, she is just a buzzkill. And in this film, she actually is given much more agency. And it's much more about her story, really, because there's, there's a thing about her mum, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who has gone missing when she was a child. And it's all about trying to overcome that and deal with that loss. And I thought, well, that is a loss that I can actually feel because you are, you, because you're given it more time in this film. It did annoy me, actually, that there was a lot of the things that were in the trailer that I realised that aren't in the film. I'm going to have to stop doing that, guys, because it is a bit annoying. But I also like the fact that I thought the action did work really well. I thought there was lots of really good stuff in there. And it also looked like a film, because recently the Marvel films just looked like smeary CGI pastels, or that grey concrete look that Patrick Willems talks about in a very good video essay, where he explains why all the Marvel films just look the same and just have that washed-out look to them. This looked like a film. It was only halfway through that I thought, that's what has really clicked for me in this. It looks like a film. So I thought Ant-Man and the Wasp was well worth a look, and you should check it out. One I haven't seen, and we should probably skip through these a little bit quicker, <laughs> is Equalizer 2. Yeah, I can probably send this up <laughs> since Denzel, Denzel Washington's sequel to Equalizer 1, based on the TV series which started with Woodward. He is a former Black Ops um, agent now kind of sort of making up for his past sins by helping people wherever he can. He works a day job in this case as an Uber, uh, a Lyft driver. It helps give, helps out in the community. And a, a good portion of the film is him driving people around and engaging with people and just being generally nice and helpful. And then occasionally some bad guys will turn up, whether they're frat boys who've like fratty businessmen who've roughed up a prostitute or murder, you know assassins who've killed his best mate. And he'll end up in a in a, in a reasonably confined space with them and basically have to take them apart. But it, 
so it's it's a, it's a weird blend of like some pretty brutal violence and care in the community. And there's a really lovely little scene in it with an actor, an actor called Kevin Chapman, who's probably best known as Fusco in the uh, the the corrupt, the formerly corrupt cop in the. TV series Person of Interest, who plays this alcoholic, this well, this struggling alcoholic who's on the wagon in the back of uh, Denzel's cab, uh, and he's just basically trying to convince, trying to psych himself up and convince himself not to go to this bar that he's clearly told Denzel to drive him to. And it's this absolutely electric, you know, ma- two minutes long max, up there with my scenes of the year because it's just so unexpected, and it's it's nice when an action thriller can leave space for something like that. One film that I haven't seen, but I was really really looking forward to, but just hadn't got time to do it because of all the Fright Fest coverage and because of obviously going to Stockholm for Ben's wedding, was The Meg. The Jason Statham versus a big shark. Should I want to see it still? Yeah, it's fun and silly. Uh, a bit generic, but it's got some nice... Mo- you know, if you're, if you're basically there because you want to see Jason Statham punch a shark... Um, yes. then, then, I so do want then, to see that. Yeah, there are some there are some nice Jaws riffs on on the, on the various Jaws films, and if you've ever wanted to see somebody in one of those sort of inflatable balls that goes along the surface, I can't quite remember what they're called. Being a the theme today, uh-huh. um, uh, getting trying to outrun a shark under the surface. <laughs> yes, sounds amazing. <laughs> or a less tragic take on Alex Kintner from the the kid from the first Jaws film in the form of a fat Chinese kid with a lollipop. <laughs> Still sounds amazing, and I can only handle one film that's got yeah something as as emotionally raw as Alex's mum going up to Chief Brody, grief-stricken, having come from his funeral, and chastising him because you knew there was a shark out there and you let people go swimming anyway. Oh, brilliant! Um, so yes, <laughs> um, yeah, then you know it's got it's got a good supporting cast who most of whom don't die, and only one of whom dies in a way that you could be considered mean spirited. Well, it was cut down from an R, wasn't it? Yeah. So there was a heavier R rating. I'm, I'm glad they cut it down. From yeah, an R. I don't think it doesn't. Should. It doesn't need. It's not Deep Blue Sea. It doesn't need people getting horribly mauled, and yeah. so that's yes, yeah, perfectly fine. Okay, so we've got three more to do, and then we're going to go to London Film Festival. So the Children Act, uh, based on the book by Ian. Mc- Ian, not Ian McNeese, Ian McEwen. Who did On Chesil Beach. And Enduring Love and yes. Nutshell. Yes. And yeah, he's a very sort of prolific British writer about a judge uh, in this play by Emma Thompson who's charged with deciding whether or not a 17-year-old um, cancer patient played by uh, Finn Whitehead from um, Dunkirk yep. can be forced to undergo treatment. His, he, his parents are Jehovah's Witnesses and he's been brought up as such and he's, and he, he's refusing a blood transfusion and it's up to her to basically make the decision on whether or not he can be compelled. Yeah. And it's very well acted. It's got Stanley Tucci playing her husband and Emma Thompson has the wonderful poise and resolve and sense of this inner life. But the issue with the film is that it, you're never given that much insight into it. You're kind of, you're forced to project onto it. it, it she's she's been absolutely superb, in, especially in films like Remains of the Day and Howard's End, where, where films that, but that, films that actually allow you that insight, they sort of, they crack the ice and let yeah. you in a bit. And this film never really does. She, you know, there are some more emotional scenes where she's clearly very upset, but you never quite get the in, look behind the curtain. It's interesting that, because this is a film that came along with a lot of pedigree and the book, I think, is very well regarded. And someone in my book club mm-hmm. uh, said that they found a passage of the book to be incredibly disturbing and very, very moving. But they wouldn't want to read it again because it so upset them. Now, they have children, so therefore mm-hmm. they will probably be able to relate to it in a way that I can't. But they, but I, but I want to read the book because they said that it's a really, really good There's book. There's nothing of... that disturbing in the film. There are a couple of bits that are... 
and slightly it's, fraught. It's it's a, it's one of those films that all the newspapers gave four stars to because they couldn't give it three. Well, I think Empire gave it a three star. And when I saw, okay. I saw, I saw a couple of three star reviews and thought, oh, clawing it back, Empire. That, yeah, yeah. Thought that says it all. The fact that this is getting three stars suggests that they haven't. That it's all very well put together, but they haven't cracked the emotional nut of this, basically. Yeah. And it's funny, because I really liked On Chesil Beach, even though On Chesil Beach doesn't have the moment for which the book is incredibly famous or infamous. And it's a bit of the spaceship, right? Yeah, indeed. It's a bit where they, he they falls break, off a building yeah. and goes yeah. into a spaceship and has a fight with another spaceship and then lands in the exact same place where he fell off the building. That's a life of Brian. Anyway... Yes, it has a moment in there that was referenced in an episode of Peep Show, and it's a lot of people who have read the book said, I can't believe they haven't chosen to do that. And it's like, well, actually, that's one of the things about Ian McEwan is that he works well on the page for that sort of thing. But if you see it, if you see it, it would just tip. If you see it. If you see it, it would just tip the balance and the tone would shift way too much. And Peep, it just Peep, Peep Show had already done it at that point. Yeah, and, that's right, yeah. And Peep Show had already done it at that point. But on Chesil Beach, I thought was really good. I mean, I actually... I missed it. That was the last LFF. It's actually out on... Uh, I think it's out to buy on Monday. Is it? Because it kind of came and went at the cinema, and I was surprised by that. Um, Sergio Ronan is absolutely fantastic in it, and the guy is actually absolutely fantastic as well. I can't remember his name, but, um, but anyway, it is very good. And it actually reminded me a little bit of The Remains of the Day, which is high praise indeed. Okay, so going on to another film that's a little bit in the same area as The Rains of the Day, Christopher Robin. Yeah, it's a film that you wouldn't expect to be in the same. <laughs> um, it's a you know, new Disney film. Um, uh, Christopher Robin uh, has grown up and forgotten about Winnie the Pooh and his friends. Christopher Robin is played by Ewan McGregor as a sort of very stressed, distracted businessman who doesn't have time for his family. So it's Hook then? It's basically Hook. <laughs> um and and then, you know, he Pooh comes back into his life and he rediscovers his sense of wonder. And it's basically, it feels like Winnie the Pooh as shot by Terence Malick. There are lots of scenes of nature and, you know, the sun filtering through the dappled leaves and the corn of him dealing with his sense of regret and his sense of having grown up. And, yet, and then they've got some, like, boardroom scenes involving Mark Gatiss as playing his sort of snide work... Snide... Work, or something. No, work... Work shy boss. Okay. And it's it's a bit of an odd tone. I'm not saying it doesn't entirely doesn't work, but one of those, you know he's sat there, you know he's he's up on the hill giving I'm sorry, Hugh McGregor, Chris Robbins up on the hill giving Winnie the Pooh a hug, and you're just like, oh, this is a bit sad. And maybe I don't want Winnie the Pooh to be a bit sad. It's weird, isn't it? This whole Nolanization of things that you. And it's like it's like a bit um Pete's Dragon, um the mm. David Lowry Pete's yeah, Dragon from Disney. Same, same I thing. thought it struck a perfect tone. It was a slightly more mature look at. What started life as an animated dragon. Yes, in a uh, uh, lower tier Disney film. Yeah, and actually had some magic and some craft to it. But I think I think in the end I found Winnie the Pooh a bit. Winnie the Pooh might be the co lead in it, but it's a bit more Eeyore. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's Christopher Robin, which who bothered? Yeah, I don't think anyone thought was going to be an examination of someone's midlife crisis. But anyway, so before we move on to the London Film Festival, on to Searching. What is that? Uh, Searching is a mystery, a mystery film that is shot or appears entirely on a computer screen. Uh, it's all about this uh, this father, uh, David Kim, played by John Cho, whose daughter goes missing. And by looking into social media, Facebook, and he begins to um, get an understanding of that he perhaps didn't know his daughter all that well. So it's, a, it's about a year after the death of his wife, and he's still slightly shaken up and 
depressed. And it's as much an investigation into his daughter as it is a character study of of John Cho's character and his relate and how his relationship isn't what he isn't what he thinks it is. And although it's one of those films that could very much be a gimmick. It's handled very lightly. The assumption is you know what Facebook is, you know how all this stuff works, and uh, through FaceTime, and you know, there's, there's even a bit all set on on like Google Drive. Basically, use <laughs> just use it as a mechanism to tell the story. And there's a pretty funny um, joke involving an app that I can't now remember the name of. So you know, watch the film. Facebook. <laughs> yes, Facebook. That's the uh, <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> this, the, we're going to keep yeah, we're going to keep naming. <laughs> They're all in there, and. and um, <laughs> Uh, my housemate Alex had a criticism that he doesn't it's one of those stories that the way in which the story is told isn't fundamentally important to the story itself you could tell the story in another way and he was and he was, he was sort of talking oh he expected it to do this because it would say so much about the way you know make a very clearly make a very clear why they'd chosen to present the film like that you know they would have tied format to narrative inextricably in a way that the, in a way that I'm actually glad the film doesn't because that would be very limiting so do you think it's something that was done for budget there's no reason why I think I, mean, I can look up we can look up how much it costs the internet allows us to do this but no, I can't imagine it broke the bank it's the uh, directorial debut a featured directorial debut of a director called Anish Chiganti and it, well it's grossed 15 million so there have been quite a few so there was Unfriended and there was the Maisie Williams Channel 4 one-off Cyberbully and there's a film playing at the London Film Festival that's again all from the point of view of a computer screen it seems to be the new found footage in a way that we can just have this playing on different screens on a computer screen and we can maybe bring down the budget there. There's actually a very good Japanese film that played at the London Film Festival a few years ago called The World of Kaneko, which is directed by Tetsuya Nakashima, who did Confessions, which was also very good. And that's similar to what you were talking about here with Searching, and that it's about a cop who is investigating the murder of his daughter. He discovers that his daughter was someone that he really... No, sorry, she's missing, she's not murdered. And he discovers that she is not the person that he thought she was. And it's... But it's very, very different in terms of it's insanely violent and really good, though. I mean, it's, it's an amazing film, but it's really, really violent. To the point where the BBFC had to hold it for a while, I think, to, and umdenard about cutting it, but didn't in the end. So, yeah, so you can watch it now. I think... He, I, I think it's on DVD. Anyway, that's the world of Kaneko, and you should watch that as well. But yeah, so searching. Very yeah. short. Okay, cool. And that app will forever remain on stream. And what are that? Tumblr. Tumblr. <laughs> Tumblr. Boom. Well done. So, without further ado, I think we should now talk about the 62nd London Film Festival. So the way this is going to work is, uh, so Rob and I have 10 films that we're excited about at the London Film Festival. We will briefly... <laughs> don't, say, don't forget the honourable mentions. Honourable mentions too. And my hot tip. And Rob <laughs> has a hot tip that he wants to share with the world. No matter how much the world says, please don't. He's going to whip out his hot tip and let us know what it looks like. Should we go in ascending order? I've just written it down, so mine's going to be in in quite a random order. Well, why don't you go first, then? All right, then. So, my first one is Border. It's also known as, and I'm going to mispronounce this like you wouldn't believe, Grunz. It's got an umlaut over the A, and it's Swedish. How would you say that? Grunz. Grunz. The only reason why I put this on is because when we were in Stockholm for Ben's wedding, which meant I couldn't go to Fryfest, but it was great, I loved it. We saw lots of posters for Grons, and Grons is written by John... Again, I'm just going to murder this. So John Ad- Adjvid Lindqvist, who 
wrote Let the Right One In. And Let the Right One In is a very interesting book. I think the film's better, but the book is good. This is based on a book that he wrote, and it is about a customs officer who has a mysterious life, and she is someone who can spot someone who is bringing something through they shouldn't do. Why is she so good at this? You begin to learn what is going on. It's fantasy, it's horror, it's a sweet 104 minutes, and it is playing as the Dare Gala, and yes, that's one I'm very much looking forward to. Well, uh, I guess I'll start with uh, Peterloo, which is Mike Lee's new film uh, about the Peterloo Massacre, uh, which took place in, in Manchester in 1819. It looks like it's sort of a pretty um, sprawling depiction of the event and the people caught up in it, and it's an exploration of class and humanity, and yeah, I, I really liked Mr. Turner which uh, had Timothy Spall as the painter. And this looks like uh, he could be on similar form with... Uh, you know, I, I generally prefer his period pieces. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge Mike Lee fan, to be honest. I find this film's a little bit disingenuous and much prefer Ken Loach. I am looking forward to seeing this one, okay. just because it will be interesting. This seems to be something that will be politically resonant now. Uh, the Peterloo Massacre is when there was... Was it a protest over... Of a lack of food or something that not everyone could eat, and they and the army were turned on the protesters. Is yes. that generally what it is? Yeah, generally what it is. Um, and it was a peaceful, peaceful march and assembly, and the soldiers basically opened fire. Yeah, so there's um, and it's a big sprawling two and a half hours, isn't it? So yes. he's going to get into yeah the nitty gritty of, of their lives. I'm sure. I never saw Mr. Turner, but I heard it was good. I. Yeah, I don't tend to run to Mike Lee films, to be honest, but I will be checking out Peter Lou, um, um, which I've is got a lot of time for Ken Loach, if only because uh, he got up at he was at my graduation from London Film School and got up and gave a speech on how not all directors can write and how writers were writing was in itself a uh, something to be admired. Yeah, and he got a big cheer from everybody on the screenwriting course and. Absolutely, and very little response from everybody on the filmmaking course who were all taking like a uh, a supplementary in uh, in, in screenwriting. <laughs> no, he is good. He is good, Mr. Loach. Yes, indeed. Anyway, so Peterloo, which is I think is is it a first that it's having its premiere in outside, Manchester? Yeah, indeed, outside of London, even though it's playing as part of the London Film Festival, mm-hmm. it seems fitting that it plays in Manchester as its premiere. Cool. So my next one is Burning by Lee Chang-dong, who is a Korean filmmaker who made poetry, and I think he made a film called Oasis years ago as well, which was very good. Again, his films, this is a, this is another two-and-a-half-hour one, his films tend to be big, sprawling films as well. This is about a man who meets a woman um, and kind of falls for her, and then she meets another person, played by Stephen Nguyen, from uh, The Walking Dead and Mayhem, which is a very good film. And it's about jealousy and male rage and male ownership of women and obsession. And if I know anything about South Korean film, and I know a little bit, I'm sure it's going to be one of those films that has lots of different tones in one and juggles them quite well. Uh, So Lee Chang-dong did poetry, which is about a woman with Alzheimer's who is um, involved in this crime. And, but of course she has Alzheimer's, that, so therefore she can't remember everything about this crime. And he tends to deal with quite violent and dark themes, but very, very sensitively. And uh, yes, so he is very good. And one other film he did, which played at the London Film Festival years ago now, was Secret Sunshine, which criminally has never been released in this country, even though it won Best Actress at Cannes, has had the Criterion Collection treatment, and is about a woman whose child goes missing, 
and she then has to go through uh, she goes through so many different things as you as she looks for her kid and then she finds out what might have happened to her kid and it's just amazing it's an amazing film it is weird that it's never been released in this country so that's secret sunshine and you should check that out as well but yeah, so Burning, which is playing as part of the Thrill Gala in association with Sight and Sound. Well, my next film is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is the new Coen Brothers film. Uh, usually, I'd probably put this higher, but uh, it's based, it's an anthology film, as was Hail Caesar, and I'm not the biggest fan of those. Just a, a sort of a, it, apparently it started life as a mini-series that was uh, going to go to Netflix until they realised it wasn't working, and now it's a series of uh, sort of loosely connected tales uh, including one with Tim Blake Nelson as the eponymous balladeer, uh, sort of outlaw balladeer and it's got James Franco as a bank robber and Liam Neeson as a as a, as a travelling performer and Tom Waits, you know, it looks like the cast is great uh, and the, the vignettes within it are probably going to be highly entertaining very dark and you know, bloodily humourful humour, humourfully bloody um, <laughs> but it, I'll be amazed if it builds to anything yeah, I don't know. I will obviously see it because we haven't seen the new Coen Brothers film, but I was not a fan of Hail Caesar. I thought Hail Caesar just felt like a four-part miniseries mm. being cut into a movie. Let's see what this looks mm-hmm. like, because this was originally going to be, I would imagine, a short-form series, yeah. that, um, is now going, which is now a movie. How long is it? It is 132 minutes. Yeah, right. Because Hell Caesar was about hour 50, wasn't it? And yeah. Yeah, anyway, we'll see. Yes, we, obviously, we, yeah, we are going to see that. My next one is Midai, or its Japanese title, Midai no Midai, which means Mirai's Mirai. So, interesting. Which is directed by... Ah, Mirai's Redundancy. Hey. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting punchy. (laughs) It's directed by Mamoru Hosoda, who did uh, The Boy and the Beast, which was on a couple of years ago at the LFF, and he also did Wolf Children, which was a lovely film as well. And this looks to be a fantastical tale of childhood. He tends to do films about childhood very well. The Boy and the Beast is kind of... It's oversimplifying it to say it, but it's kind of a boy's version of Spirited Away... This, by the looks of it, is about a um, uh, a young person, like a young lad, and his sister, and their dad has to look after them because their mum is away getting a job. That's kind of comparable to the very, very basic storyline for my neighbour Totoro, so it seems as if it could be in that vein. Apparently it is um, it's an animation of great beauty and insight, according to the LFF programme, so that is playing as part of the family gala and should be quite lovely. Cool. I might start doubling up on these or start cutting them yeah, out. Just, uh, <laughs> uh, my, my next two are Sunset by Lazno Nemes and Wildlife, which is the directorial debut of uh, actor Paul Dano. Um, Sunset is uh, Lazlo Nemes' follow-up to Son of Saul, which is a Holocaust drama played an incredibly you know, uh, stark, powerful Holocaust drama about uh, a Sonder commando at a, an extermination camp. And this is his follow-up to that. And it's also, and it's set on the eve of the First World War. A uh, a woman, a mysterious woman, returns to Budapest, uh, looking for her parents. Uh, sorry, not looking for. Sorry, I'm 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 trying to transcribe the uh, the synopsis <laughs> right now. A, uh, basically, it's set in Budapest on the on the eve of the uh, of the First World War. Uh, it stars uh, Julie Jacob, 
Yuli Jakob, and it's shot by Matthias Erdley, who also did the cinematography for Son of Saul, and it is a hefty 142 minutes, but like Son of Saul, I'm assuming it will earn its runtime. Mm. Well, Son of Saul was under two hours, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was about two hours. Maybe, it? actually, uh, it wasn't over two hours. I think it was about two hours. Right, okay, yeah. Uh, the other one being Wildlife, which is a family drama set in the 50s, starring uh, Carrie Mulligan as a well, as a woman who becomes a single mother when her volatile husband, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, basically ups and leaves her with uh, t- her teenage son, Joe, played by Ed Oxenbold. Apparently, it's just very immersive, very well observed. Okay, and Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal are good, and Paul Dano's always been interesting as an actor, so interesting to see what he does as a director. And the uh, screenplay was co-written by Zoe Kazan, who, of course, is um, Paul Dano's well, significant other as well. Yeah, I think he's she's his significant other and was oh, also right. in Ruby Sparks. Oh, okay, right. And I'm oh, going cool. to check that to make sure I haven't made that up while you move on to your next ones. <laughs> well, I'm going to stay in the East for um, a couple of films here. So Shadow, which is the new one by Jang Yimou. So Jang Yimou, probably most known for House of Flying Daggers. Um, he also did The Curse of the Golden Flower and Red Sorghum. He also did The Great Wall, which was the Matt Damon monster movie fighting the monsters on the Great Wall of China. And I have to confess, I've not seen all of that film. Uh, it's not one of Jang Yimou's best films. It's not. No. <laughs> you saw that at the cinema, didn't you? I did. Um... Because you... I'm more committed to film than I am. Well, I, I did go through a phase of saying, oh, I need to see everything, and then I realised, life is short. <laughs> yeah. And also long, <laughs> but not that long. And The Great Wall is only about hour 45, but I got about a half hour in and thought, I will come back to this one because... Knowing you never would. Never were, probably. Anyway, so Shadow sees him staying in the period. It's a period film. It's... Um, I'm not entirely sure when it is, but it's it's ancient China. It's about the Three Kingdoms, and, and the Three Kingdoms, I don't know nearly enough about Chinese history to get this right, but the Three Kingdoms are basically in a lot of Chinese action movies. It's when there were three warring kingdoms. Um, I think there's a film called The Assassins, which might be the same same time. There's, there's certainly a Jet Li film called, could even be called The Three Kingdoms, which is very, very good and talks about that period as well. It's when... Um, so China basically for hundreds of years were broken up into different feudal kingdoms which, which were constantly warring with each other, which is um, historically why it was easy for Japan to conquer China during World War Two, because there was no cohesive government, which then led on to the communist government. Yeah, isn't, after isn't, World isn't that War what II. the fucking massive war was for to go back to? <laughs> yeah, it's the um... We don't need a cohesive government, we've got a fuck off massive war. But uh... I'm pretty sure we can't know right now because it's you know back in the future, but you're pretty sure we could you would be able to see it from space. Apparently you can't. Apparently that is a um, urban myth that you can see the see the Great Wall of China from space. You can't. So Basically, you're saying that everything mankind's ever built is ultimately insignificant and we're all just dust in the wind. In the existential view of things, yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you're on the dark side of the moon, doesn't mean anything. There's a big wall on Earth. Anyway. So Shadow, based on the Three Kingdoms legend, it's also shot by the guy, by Zhao Zhao Ding, who did House of Flying Daggers. It has an umbrella weapon that will be the envy of every Londoner, according to the programme. There's a nice lineage of umbrellas being used in Chinese action films. Um, there's a very good moment in Once Upon a Time in China when someone throws a kettle of hot water at Jet Li and he opens up a brolly to uh, to protect himself, and it's brilliant. Anyway, so that's Shadow. And then moving on to, well, kind of the East. So Park Chanuk, my favourite directors, he did Old Boy and Thirst and Lady Vengeance and The Handmaid. Is it The Handmaid? 
Or The Handmaiden? The Handmaiden. It is The Handmaiden, isn't it? Yes, there are so many films that are called something like The Handmaid. Anyway, he did The Handmaiden, which was on a couple of years ago. He has Spoke. adapted The Little Drummer Girl, which is a... Um, John Le Carre. That's right. Um, a John Le Carre novel. He's directed... It's by the BBC. It's based by the same team, I think, who did The Night Manager. And it's six episodes, and they are showing the first two as part of the London Film Festival. So that will be interesting to see... One, how that looks in terms of watching two episodes of a six-episode series, and also to see what Park Channel has done with The Little Drummer Girl. It's the same cinematographer from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, right. Well, that should be quite good then, because that looks fantastic in a very, very muted way, but it certainly wasn't boring to look at. So what are your next two? Well, I think I'm, I might even start ploughing these through ploughing through these at a quicker rate. There's no rush. There's no <laughs> rush. We're only an hour and two minutes in, and it'll be, oh, wow, okay. it'll be shorter than that once I've uh, chopped it down. Uh, there's Happy New Year, Colin Burstead, which is Ben Wheatley's new film, uh, starring Neil Maskell, and it's about a family party uh, over New Year at a country home, and all the sort of tension and toxicity that can go along with that. Got a, it's got a great cast again: uh, Neil Maskell from uh, Kill List, as well as the TV series Utopia, Sam Riley, Joe Cole, Charles Dance, Hayley Squires, Bill Patterson. Apparently, it was shot in under two weeks. I'm going to open a, a can of bloody worms on this one. Uh, it's not. I'm not enormously looking forward to it because I've heard mixed things. But um, the remake of Suspiria. Yeah, indeed. So. Tell me what you think about the remake of Suspiria. I think it's a bloody good idea. The, the first film was far too slight, and I think it's left marked... Dario Argento as a director, I think it's left marked room for improvement, really. Yeah. See, Rob's obviously just joking there. I'm not. <laughs> obviously <laughs> joking there. Suspiria, which played last year, the Dario Argento 1977 version, played last year at the LFF in a 4K restoration that I have to say was breathtakingly beautiful. And reaffirmed it's a bit gaudy though isn't it oh it's <laughs> sumptuous <laughs> sumptuous horror lurid. lurid well yes it is lurid <laughs> wonderfully lurid um in yeah. the way that old horror posters were lurid filmed in three strip technicolor so the, the same process that, that they made snow white because argento said he wanted to make something that was like it was there was a horror film that was like snow white was when you were a kid and my god what a it's reaffirmed in my mind, the Suspiria is probably the best horror film, and the fa- so you remake it at your peril. And but this one's hour longer. If anything, that just means longer. it's going to be even better. Well, you see, that's interesting because you get to the end of Suspiria, the ninety-five minutes ish. And if anything, you think it was for. too long. <laughs> no, I'd say I want to stay in this world more, Dario. I want to stay in this world that you've created and. The sequel to Suspiria, Inferno, does kind of take you back into the world, but not. I think, to the same degree that Suspiria does. So anyway, so a two-and-a-half-hour Suspiria, and two-and-a-half hours seems to be the runtime this year for the LFF, doesn't it, Christ? There are so many films that come in at two-and-a-half hours. But uh, but uh, Luca Guadagno, uh, last year did Call Me By Your Name, so he's 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 deriving, riding a bit of a wave. And... But he has got a horror background, though, and the thing, I don't know, the thing with this is that the trailer just reminds me of the trailer for Let Me In. So going back to Let The Right One In, let Me In was the remake that was directed by Matt Reeves, who actually did much better stuff with the... Uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, he did the last two, didn't he? He's doing the new Batman film. Apparently, yeah. We'll see until it actually comes out. But yes, so... But it just looks like a dour, literal remake of a masterpiece. And it looks adding like, it in looks lots of... It looks a little of, bit arthouse. Well, it looks a little bit willfully 
opaque and one of those things where we're going to cram in lots and lots of character and character depth but actually we're going to slow the entire thing down to the point of it becoming quite tedious uh, i mean i've heard mixed things about it the, the really really positive notices just read like that they're made that they're written by people who haven't seen a lot of horror films and the horror experts that i know and have heard their opinions say it's a bit disappointing. I look forward to I, just so, willfully disagreeing with you on this when we see it. Indeed. So, well, that's the thing is that I, because I've kind of written this off because it's like, well, how can you top Suspiria? And you know, why even call this Suspiria? Because also, you know, Suspiria is so wonderfully I mean, visual. Why, why call anything Suspiria, really? <laughs> yeah, it's so wonderfully <laughs> visual. Whereas in this one, apparently, he's gone the opposite way and has... has Quite a muted colour palette. With really muted, wintry colour palette. And it's like, well, then don't call it Suspiria. Just call so much more, but so much more tasteful, really, isn't it? Well, we have a really good version, a you know, remake of Suspiria, and it's called Black Swan. Black Swan was a great homage to what Suspiria was, but did its own thing. So, yeah. Suspiria, it's been on the cards a long time, this remake, and lots of other directors have tried to have a crack at it and haven't been able to do it. It's now a thing that exists. I am looking forward to, is it... Dakota Johnson in this one. Uh, Dakota Johnson, Tilda Swinton, Mia Goth. In a type of, in a, car, a casting I'm sure utterly unfamiliar, Chloe Grace Moretz. Yeah. Who along with Elle Fanning has become, has now staked out the, on the cusp of womanhood, yeah, discovery. Sort of, uh, yeah, the fucked up student basically. That at but, some point is a casting they're going to have to change. <laughs> well, yeah, Dakota Johnson, I'm looking forward to seeing what she does with it because she hasn't been well served by the Fifty Shades of Grey films, though I'm sure they made her fabulously wealthy. So, I don't know, we'll see. Suspiria, we will see. You will hear my thoughts on it, even if you don't want to. Was that your first one, or is it That my was turn? my second one. Okay. Was turn. Well, I'm going to get a couple of documentaries then. So, Won't You Be My Neighbour, which is the Mr. Rogers film. So, Mr. Rogers was a kids' TV presenter during, I think, the 60s and 70s. And he never came over here. It was one of those things where... But he's... Beloved to a generation of Americans. Gentle, sweater-wearing, paragon of all decency. Paragon of all decency. Who, unlike lots of kids' favourites from their childhood, isn't evil. There's nothing he did that completely destroyed his legacy. And they've made this film... He he actually went in front of, I think it was Congress, and actually managed to convince funding for public service television at a point when they were going to cut it. That's right. He just seems like a really, really good guy. His kids' show was socially conscious but not in a preachy way it was just in a very matter of fact i'm sorry but there is no difference between the racist sort of way there's a there's a very very famous clip when swimming pools were segregated so after segregation but there were certain states that a black person couldn't swim in a white swimming pool and there's a very very famous clip where a policeman comes around to see him not because he's done anything wrong even though he's a kids presenter it's a hot day and the policeman's black and he says do you want to uh, to cool your feet in my pool so he puts his feet in the pool and, and he says something like, this is, this is just nice, isn't it? This is really nice, this is. And it's one of those things, a loaded thing that he was saying, saying, yeah, look, this is what we're doing and we don't care what you think. So he seems a really, really nice guy. And they've made a documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbour. It made about $20 million in the States. And it's just about him, really. And the Slash Film cast, they talked about it at length on that. And apparently it is just, even if you don't know who this guy is, it's just an absolutely wonderful documentary. So I'm looking forward to that one. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have 
Fahrenheit 11.9, which is Michael Moore's new film about Donald Trump, who isn't a nice guy and will probably like to put in a law where black people can't swim with white people. And uh, yes, this is a film about how he came to be president, what that means and all the things that have happened since. I really like Michael Moore films. I know he's a polemicist. Documentaries are very, very skewed, but I think the Fahrenheit 911 is one of the great documentaries and I'm looking forward to seeing what he's going to do with Donald Trump. So we'll see with that. Okay. Um, I am going to... Actually, I think I'm going to take a whack at three now. Well, I'm going to have three for my next one as well because I've got three that are thematically linked. You see? It's like almost like I knew. Uh, <laughs> next one I'm going to say uh, is Destroyer, uh, directed by Karen Kusama, which stars Nicole Kidman as an LAPD, de- LAPD detective who uh, is forced to confront her past when a criminal uh, gang member gang leader whom she you know whose gang she infiltrated years ago basically comes out of the woodwork and it's shot in LA and it's apparently records it records films like uh, Chinatown to live and die in LA and it's you know it's a really strong female-led cop story and the picture of Nicole Kidman suggests that she is not glamming up for yeah, this she one has anyway. certainly, certainly de-glammed she has um Oscar-worthy de-glamming there I hope so be, be, you know <laughs> Well, it's one one already, so that's fine. <laughs> and then there's Outlaw King, which is by David McKenzie. I don't know if he's done anything since then, but obviously for, from Hell and High, Hell or High Water, which was amazing. Which is and it's about uh, Robert the Bruce, as played by Chris Pine. And it's described as a bold vision of the era, a hugely entertaining epic set amid the jaw-dropping beauty of the Scottish landscape. And if he does anything, he can do anything with the Scottish landscape as he did with the uh, the Texan landscape. Mm. I can definitely get behind that. And, and Chris Pine. And, Chris it, and, it is, and it is a Netflix film. Shall I do my final one of this block? Oh, yes, go on, yeah. Uh, Out of Blue, which I'm really looking forward to seeing. It's by Carol Morley, who did The Falling, about hysteria breaking out, fainting hysteria at a girls' school in England, starring Maisie Williams. Williams. Um, and this one is about an, al- a, uh, an alcoholic detective played by Patricia Clarkson investigating a murder, and it's based on Martin Amis's Night Train... And the, 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 I mean, the ensemble cast, James Cunn, Toby Jones. And if she manages to capture anything like the sort of the ethereal, otherworldly feel that she did in um, The Falling, which I know hugely divided people. Yes. I, I thought it was a five-star film. This could be really one to watch. And the fact it's got a score by Clint Mansell doesn't hurt its chances. Yeah, it's interesting. I have to admit, I haven't seen The Falling yet. Which is, I know, is a is a massive hole in my recent viewing because it is one well, of those you know, where if you're a bad people... day, if you're if you're a um, uh, bad day at Black Rock, no, I'm not thinking of that Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes, which I am. Yeah. Love Picnic at Hanging Rock. So yes, I do need to see it because it, it also is incredibly divisive. There are people that say that's the worst film of the year that year. So I'm always watch those films. Where it's, it's like got, it's got, got best Greta, film. Worst it's got film. a in it. Yeah, which is always a good thing. So um, out of the blue, yeah, this is interesting. This one because I think this has what you were talking about in terms of the dreamy atmosphere, makes me think a little bit of that one, the one, the really awful one, with what's-his-name, Joaquin Phoenix, you were never really here when it was yeah. called, which we didn't like, did we? Oh, <laughs> it's got some striking <clears throat> images from it that I still recall, but yeah, ultimately it's a thesis on emptiness, which is, as any uh, ad- adaptation of The Great Gatsby will demonstrate, is something that's really difficult to dramatically convey. It's it's nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Was I thought you were never really here? Was uh, in fact I can't even remember. Was it here or there? You were never really here. Here, right? Oh Jesus. Was uh, it was like you know, Lynn Ramsey, and it had so many champions. But it's like I'm sorry. This is one of those films where an important director 
thinks they're reinventing the wheel by doing something that Canon Films were doing with Charles Bronson 30 years ago and, and not doing anything else with it. And it's never really here or there. The only good thing about it is your review says... Joaquin Phoenix looks like he's wearing a mask of his own face. <laughs> that is so true and so accurate and such a good line. It's like it's almost worth the film existing just for that line. Anyway, I'm hoping this one isn't that. And also, Patricia Clarkson, she's should be getting Oscar noms, really. Yeah. She's, she was, one of those she, was in, always she was in the party last year and she was always overlooked, I find. Yeah. Okay, then we're my final three. So there Oh is... I've got I've got another three and then another three. Yes. Oh, yeah, because you got your honourable mentions, haven't you? Yeah, the ones I started with, sorry. Everything up until Happy New Year, Colin <laughs> Burstead, was an honourable mention, although I spent a while going back and forth on these anyway, so it's an entirely putative it's list fine. anyway. So the first one in my next block of three is Dogman, which is directed by Matteo Garoni, who did Gamora, which I thought was a great film. And this is described as a masterful tale of twisted friendship, not-so-petty crime and revenge, set in a seedy coastal town on the outskirts of Rome. And it's about a dog groomer who falls in with local thieves. And so it's a habitual risk. Yes, that's right. <laughs> anyway, so the main guy in it is uh, Marcello Fonte, and he won Best Actor at Cannes. And it's also, just in terms of yeah, anyone who likes Italy, so Gamora was set in the southern area, Around, around Naples. Around and... Naples, yeah. So that kind of yeah, Neapolitan area. This is set in the northern area of Rome. So it would be interesting to see how he views that because Gamora did just look like something. Like, yeah, the very landscape itself had been utterly poisoned by these horrible gangsters. You have just set up a very neat segue, if, if, if you'll please me to uh, Roma. Uh, well, which is not actually set in Rome. It's set in Mexico City. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's by, uh, it's <laughs> fine. It's, all, it's not in English, it's fine. <laughs> but it's by another important director. It's by Alfonso Cuaron. And it's uh, set in 1970. It's about a, uh, a domestic worker named Cleo in Mexico City who's employed uh, uh, by this middle-class mother and looks after her children. And... It's basically just a. It looks like a after sort of the scape, the scale and scope of gravity, <laughs> like a really intimate, well observed look at the specific t- place in you know, this specific moment and place. And it's, it's shot in black and white, and it's being described as Curon's masterpiece. Wow, how long is it? Uh, it is 135 minutes. Interesting. Is it his first film since Gravity? Ah, uh, I can't think of another. I mean, yes, the, no, it, I can't think of another either. He. Um, hmm. Because Gravity was a while back now. That was like 2012 or 13. That was my first London Film Festival. I managed to get along to the actual gala screening of that at the Odeon Letter Square and loved loved it. I would have been in there. Wow, okay. So at the evening showing. Uh, oh no, I actually would have been in the morning because okay, I, right. I went to the press screen. Um, it was Gravity five years ago. Wow, okay. Before we knew each other. Yes, indeed. That was about a year before, wasn't it? So that was yeah. the... Yeah, so that would have been October of 2013. Yeah. And we met in May of 2014. So, there you go. That was just all building up to that time. <laughs> From the moment the gravity started, it was just a ticking clock to us meeting. I then dragged my then-girlfriend to go and see Gravity at the IMAX, because I thought it was so amazing. I thought, we have to see this in, in IMAX. Behind us, there was a guy who clearly had never seen a film before, didn't know how narrative cinema worked, because towards the end of the film, he just was reacting so like, oh no, oh no, it's like, I don't think this is going to have an unhappy ending now, because we've done so much that I just don't, anyway, it's fine. Um, It was a funny screening. The guy behind us was really into it. Uh, My other film is The Prey. Now, The Prey is directed by Jimi Henderson, who 
did Jailbreak last year. And Jailbreak was a really, really good film. It was basically these gangsters who tried to to break a government or, or try to get to a government witness who's going to rat out a crime boss. He's in prison and a riot is orchestrated and these cops have to get the witness out of the prison. It's very much like The Raid in terms of... The Raid is clearly an inspiration for this film. What was notable about it was that the leads were martial arts stars, but everyone else was just a fan of action films that they, or just yeah, actors that they'd hired and then taught how to fight. Hmm. And it has like a really, really scrappy charm to it. It also has Celine Tran, who was, um, was formerly a porn star called Katsuni, and she's the big bad in it. And she's actually very, very good. And she did a lot of sword work to, uh, to have a big fight at the end. And it has one scene that's clearly like a showcase, a directorial yeah. showcase scene that all looks like it's done in one take, which was very good. Anyway, he's, he's in another film. So Jimmy Henderson has done another film called The Prey, which is another Cambodian film. And it's about um, a Cambodian jail. It just seems as if Cambodian jails are quite rough places to be. And basically the prisoners are being used in like a most dangerous game thing where they are hunted by sadistic yeah i think that they sadistic pleasure seekers can come to this prison and basically hunt down the prisoners and kill them oh man this man's still the most dangerous game surely just all the versions of the most dangerous game have proven that maybe man isn't the most dangerous game well man always tends to win in these most dangerous games yeah because it's man who's hunting man therefore by default it's not it's not a lion with it's not a lion with that's a sniper the rifle why, that's the reason why the people hunt man because he's the most dangerous game um, I feel like if you've got a rifle, there are very few things that qualify as most. I think you're probably the most dangerous game. If you were to no, give someone a hunter, though, you 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 are choosing to hunt the most dangerous. But game. if you give the other person a rifle and give them a head start and don't know where they are, then I feel like it's you are hunting the most dangerous game. Otherwise, you're just hunting a bloke. Well, I would have to. Or a lady. I'm because... not like equal opportunities person hunting. <laughs> because if you watch these films, which you must have done, because I think that the most dangerous game is the most filmed story in all of cinema, even more than Boy Meets Girl. Because in these films, a lot of times, a boy does meet a girl, and it's a couple who are on the run from these people that are hunting them. And they always tend to fight back and find a way to turn you know, the odds against. Um, against their pursuer. So I think that man is the most dangerous game. And Not if you prepare properly. Um, I don't agree with that. <laughs> we will now have to it's, prove it's, our point by getting someone and hunting it, them. It's to like death. that line in In Bruges when he's telling, when Harry's get, being told about how this guy had the gun taken off him and, yes. and had a blank fired next to his, ne- in, into his eye. Yeah. And, and you do it, you do it very well. Yeah. I'm actually going to get that cliff and put it on, on there because no one does it as well as Ray Fiennes. It's such a yes. That's Which basically what, sums up my, my, my thoughts towards the dang, most dangerous game. But also, I think if we were to hunt someone to death, that's exactly what would happen to us, what you're about to hear now. Motherfucker! Is he talking to me? No, Eric's on your side, Mr. Waters. Your young friend blinded him last night. Righted. I was trying to rob him. And he took my gun from me. And the gun was full of blanks. And he shot the blank into my eye. And now, I cannot see from this eye ever again, the doctors say. Well, to be honest, it sounds like it was all your fault. What? I mean, basically, if you're robbing a man and you're only carrying blanks and you allow your gun to be taken off you and you allow yourself to be shot in the eye with a blank, which I assume the person has to get quite close to you, then, yeah, really, it's all your fault for being such a puff. So why don't you stop whinging and cheer the fuck up? Eric. 
I really wouldn't respond. <laughs> anyway, so The Prey, directed by Jimmy Henderson, it is playing as part of the Thrill strand, and I think it looks really good. And my final one for this is Mandy, and wow. So I've Mandy. heard some very, very good things about this. Um, directed by Panos Kosmatos, who I presume is Greek, and is Nicolas Cage. A lot of people have seen this and say it's fucking insane. Um, produced by Elijah Wood. Yes, Nicolas Cage lives in harmony with his wife, Andrea Riceborough, who I think is a very interesting actress. She's got another, she's in another film, at least one more film at the festival, called Nancy. Okay, right. And anyway, so it's a home invasion film. Satanists break into their house. So it's Nick Cage versus, versus the Satanists. Apparently Mandy is like an art house horror movie and the beginning before it all goes completely batshit crazy is, is apparently very arty and then when it goes absolutely batshit crazy it goes take no prisoners batshit crazy apparently is just fucking insane. Well between that and sort of mum and dad it sounds like Nicolas Cage is actually finding some filmmakers who kind of, mm. kind of fit his uh, nouveau shamanic. That's right. Yeah because mum and dad was that's just one of the hidden gems of the year that is which is now out to rent is now on streaming services so you it should is. definitely go and rent mum and dad so yes that's my little thriller block and see Mandy's playing as part of the cult strand hmm well okay I'm going to run through my numbers five to two very quickly so I can have a, a little bit longer to talk about one uh, my, my number five is Widows uh, which is the new film of I, uh, Steve McQueen who lasted 12 years as slave and it's based on the book by Linda LaPlante and it's about a group of women uh, including uh, Viola Davis and uh, Michelle Rodriguez Elizabeth Debicki their husbands are put out commission um, after taking place in a heist and then they have to carry it out themselves uh, in order to pay off uh, some nasty loan sharks <laughs> and essentially it sounds like they've just and uh, Liam Neeson plays one of the husbands and it sounds like one of those stories that usually it'd be the wives that die or something's happened to the wives and the men have to go out and do the job but it flips it quite neatly on its head it's by Steve McQueen who I'll watch to do just about anything he's a very I'm not a huge I wasn't a huge fan of Steve McQueen because I thought that Hunger was technically very interesting but rather I don't know rather cowardly in terms of not wanting to get involved in the politics of Bobby Sands it's like how can you make a film about Bobby Sands where you don't talk about politics I thought that Shame was just laughable nonsense then he did 12 with Carrie Mulligan with Carrie Mulligan yeah then again, singing a song she, I'm sorry she always gets a do-over from me yeah yes that's right <laughs> if you get it you get it it's, it's a golf reference it's a golf joke because when you, when you miss the shot you get a mulligan yes you can take it's a mulligan al- it's also a reference to every evangelical preacher who is now forgiving Trump his sins because he's getting a mulligan anyway but then he did 12 years a slave how and big I thought, sin can you claim as a mulligan <laughs> I know it's fucking bullshit isn't it for 12 Years a Slave, I thought, my God, this is a very good filmmaker, and this film is... Incendiary. But it's more than that. It's, it's really intelligent. It's really compassionate. It's one of those things where it doesn't have that horrible artsy veneer that McQueen, who was, of course, like a video artist, put on his first two movies. Yeah, I thought that and it was a five-star classic. It's, it's a really, really brilliant film. So I'm looking forward to Widow to see what he does with this. Um, of course, Widows is, is written by... Linda Plant. And who does the screenplay for this one? Uh, the screenplay is written by, oh, Gillian Flynn. The Gone Girl. And the interesting thing about this is that, so we were talking about Widows before when you said that you didn't realise it was a series. And it was, it was, I think it was an ITV series during the 90s. And at the time, it was seen as very bold that it was the women having to get involved because the men have gone away. So it's these female gangsters. Um, and 
how far we've come that that still seems bold and inventive. So, um, but yes, I'm looking forward to that one. And uh, my next one up is The Old Man and the Gun by David Lowy, which will feature the final, what's meant to be the final screen performance of uh, Robert Redford, who's now retiring. And in it, he plays a bank robber called Forrest Tucker, who's known for breaking out of prison. And uh, he's been on this crime spree and meets uh, meets Jewel, played by Sissy Spacek, mm. who, of course, has played uh, has also sort of uh, atypical gangster's mole in uh, well, her sort of her breakout role, which was Badlands. Badlands, yeah. yeah. Um, I was letting it think. Which, of course, is a big <laughs> which, of course, was a big cinematic reference for David Lowry, who owes a big debt to Malik. So, what did David Lowry do before? Well, as Pete's Dragon, uh, he uh, his first film, I believe, was Ain't Them Bodies Saints. That's right. And yeah. last year was a Ghost Story. And, and this also uh, stars uh, or features Casey Affleck, who I'm sure is present, who, uh, whose presence I'm sure will be controversial to many for reasons that I believe we mentioned in this podcast before. <laughs> we have. Well, no, it's just um, the wonderfully craggy, ebullient presence of Robert Redford uh, in his last screen role sharing time with Sissy Spacek as a bank robber. And it's also got Casey Affleck in it, hopefully being pretty good. And what was one of Robert Redford's key performances? Butch Cassidy. Yeah, indeed. Well, he was um, Sundance Kid. Sundance Kid, yeah. I wonder if they ever, at one point, were going to call this film Gun Forest Gun. Um, yes. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> I'm going to say... Because <laughs> he plays someone called, called Forest. Called Forest. Gun in it. Yes. Have more than one. You have two. He could have multiple. He, there could be, yeah. Gun Forest Gun. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Um, there's, um, there's also If Beale Street Could Talk, the new film by Barry Jenkins, whose uh, who's mo- who's last film, Moonlight, uh, won Best Picture. Did it? I've got to remember you, remember you speak. <laughs> um, and this is uh, based on a book by uh, James Baldwin. I think it's, only second, it's only the second adaptation to ever to be made based on this work about a black couple living in 1970s Harlem, uh, uh, played by Stephen James and Kiki Lane, uh, and he's accused of a crime. And I'm just yeah, given I Moonlight was my film of the year. Yeah, you I just find it incredibly you have to see this one. Sensi- it's incredibly sensitive and poignant, and I'm hoping that if this film isn't anyway near in the same sort of ballpark. Um, it will be a strong candidate. Mm. Um, well, I've got actually got one more that I missed here. Oh, fine, oh, fine. You know, what? I've, 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 got, I've, <laughs> I've got two more. Uh, so you know, I just thought that you might want to have a breather. Um, in fabric which is the new one by Peter Strickland, who was at the London Film Festival years ago now with the Duke of Burgundy. And again, this one looks like... So Peter Strickland is one of those guys who his films are very much influenced by Italian cult cinema of the 70s, 60s and 70s. I don't know why that would appeal to you. Yeah, indeed. But they always have like a bit of a... One of them say art house video because that makes them seem like they're not very accessible. And even though they are very singular in their tone I think they are very very watchable um actually very very good and the Duke of Burgundy was one of my films of the year and this one goes even further into the outer reaches of the erotic macabre finding pleasures in everything from shop mannequins to the sound of someone listing washing machine parts you okay. had me at washing machine parts <laughs> yes. I, know, I know it's one of those things where I'm sure this is very watchable though because so he also did Barbarian Sound Studio didn't he which was again a fantastic movie yeah lots of yeah, we'll talk about Foley artists again. Yes, indeed. It was all about a sound man who was doing the sound effects for a horror film and hated the fact that he was doing... He just hated this horror film because it was so violent and he yeah, begins to go a bit mad. His films deal with obsession, madness and the erotic. This one stars Marianne Jean-Baptiste and Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones. His films are weirdly English in a way, even though The Duke of Burgundy was, I think, set in France and they're all inspired by that Euro-trash cinema of the 70s. There's always something 
slightly English and absurd about his movies. And I just think, yeah, I will watch anything that he does. So, um, in Fabric, which is part of the official competition. Well, that puts me down to my last two. The uh, uh, first, which is The Favourite, which is the new film by Yorgos Lanthimos, who uh, last did The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I found a bit morose, and The Lobster, which I really enjoyed. Uh, this one is about the court of Queen Anne in uh, 18th century England. Uh, she's played by Olivia Coleman, who's actually apparently getting Oscar buzz. Oh, wow. And uh, essentially her favourite, played by Rachel Weiss, whose um, status is uh, challenged by a new girl, played by Emma Stone. And it's apparently um, very riotous and scabrous and high energy lots of you know people rushing around a court doing unspeakable things to each other and also features in some capacity unless as he's he more me himself he ends up left on the editing room floor my mate liam fleming oh okay so it's just another reason for me to uh yeah rob's mate liam is very amusing yes we always meet up every year to go and see a film and have uh yeah, some something to eat for your birthday and he always makes me chuckle so hopefully he has made the final cut how long is that one it is an hour and 20 minutes. Sorry, uh, 120 minutes. Not an hour and 20 minutes. It's two hours long. Two hours long. Oh, that's cool, because I thought that one was two and a half hours again, but no, it's not. Um, and the last film on, on the list, that I, it's one I, th- I think we're both excited about to a degree, both of which probably vaguely vague trepidation that it's going to happen. Um, oh, yes. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Yes. <sighs> Let's see about this one. So shall we go back to <laughs> two thousand and? Two, was it? Yeah. When the film came out? um, Lost in La Mancha. Lost in La Mancha, which was the making of The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, uh, the Terry Gilliam film that he was making at the time with Johnny Depp and I can't remember the French actor's name. Jean Rochefort. Yes, who is now dead, isn't he? Um, And who wasn't particularly well at the time. Yes, that's right. Anyway, this was like, so like all Terry Gilliam films, particularly his latter films, there wasn't enough money, it was all incredibly ramshackle, it didn't... And they basically had to pull the plug on it. So they shot some well, of the film. It ran out of money. All the sets were washed away in a flood. Yes. Jean Rochefort, who was learning the script phonetically because he didn't speak English, fell off his horse and herniated a disc. I don't know whether his prior bad health meant they couldn't get insurance for him, but it was something along those lines. Yeah, it was one of those... Um, yeah, I remember that bit when they have hired a studio, but the studio is in no way equipped to handle sound, and it would just... All, all, all the sound would echo because it wasn't really a studio. They were just hiring a big barn. Uh-huh. Anyway, so... Uh, 15-odd years later, maybe 16, 17 years later, he finally got to make this film. So Gilliam has made The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. It sounds kind of like a Parnassus. Um, it's lots of different timelines. It sounds quite meta. I don't think, don't, that, we are really, yeah. don't think that we're guaranteed every new Gilliam film is going to be good. Although I really, really liked um, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. I really I liked The Imaginarium. I thought Zero Theorem was all right. I haven't seen Zero Theorem, which is mad because you should still watch the films that he makes. But anyway. But it's got Jonathan Price. Yep. And Adam Driver. Yeah, I will watch a film with those two in it. We will see. How long is this one? It is 132 minutes. <laughs> yep. Obviously, I, Brazil I, is about I, that same length, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is over two hours, and they are both very good films. No matter how bad it is, and I hope, and I, agree, I hope that it will not be, he has a certain visual style that's always that's generally pretty rewarding, and it's a it's an impossible film, you know, you know, to dream the impossible dream mm. that the man who killed Don Quixote will one day be released, <laughs> which it may still not be because oh, last I heard he's yes. still being sued. Yeah, so that's right, being sued, and it's all tied up in legal wranglings over a producer who says he owns it or something. Of course, the Fisher King is also um, 135 minutes long, so he can pace a film. 
I just, I don't know. If this I, comes within sniffing distance of the Fisher King, that would God, be a miracle. Be fantastic. It'd be good for him to make another great movie. I don't think he's made a great movie since Fear and Loathing, actually. I really like that. Um, Twelve Monkeys? That was before, wasn't it? wasn't too keen on it when I first saw it, but I'd say that Twelve Monkeys is a great movie, yeah. Um, so it's only really the stuff after Fear and Loathing where I think it's when he's, he's found it harder to to get the money. I think you said he works best in the studio system, and I think you're right. I think he does work best. Yeah, because it got. forces him to rein himself in. That's right. And it means that he's not herring, you know, herring across the globe making ill-conceived deals with people yes, who might... That's right. <laughs> he isn't someone for the finer details, is old Terry. And I think he needs the studio system to look after those little details for him. And say, no, we're not going to let you do that. You know, even if you get the occasional Sid, si- Sid Scheinberg, why won't you release my picture? Yes, but of course it did get released and uh, got the Criterion treatment in one of their best discs. And we watched Double Walking last year, didn't we? And it was... Uh... It was brillig. Yes, that's right. <laughs> anyway, so moving on. <laughs> we should talk about the, um, about the closing film. So much like Fright Fest this year, where we went to Stockholm for our friend Ben's wedding. You imagine that already. The closing film this year, I won't be in the country for, which I'm very, very much looking forward to, although you said you hate the look of it. Um, I hate the look of it. I'm just <laughs> no, not <kidding>. bothered. <laughs> is Stan and Ollie, which is a Lauren Hardy film about uh, Lauren Hardy when they came to England. I think during the 50s, was it? Something like that? Um, 1953. And one of the reasons why I'm very much looking forward to this film is that Ollie Hardy is played by John C. Riley, and Stan Laurel is played by Steve Coogan. Now, I love John C. Riley, but Steve Coogan, I think, is just a comedy genius. And I've laughed at his stuff for well over 25 years. And to see him play Stan Laurel, I think, is going to be a real treat. So hopefully it lives up to it. And they have chosen it as the closing night gala. Who's it directed by again? Uh, John S. Baird. Who did? Filth. Yes. So if it's anything like that film. <laughs> and that's the reason why I think it's going to be good. Because Filth is one of those films that was based on an Irving Welsh novel. Unfilmable. But he cracked it, and it was a really, really good film, that was. James McAvoy's best performance? I don't know, it's, it's so out there, and... Uh, it's difficult to judge. It is difficult to judge, because he is just... Although he, he does give a certain amount of humanity to an absolute fucking scumbag. <laughs> um, and the fact that it's set at Christmas time is just brilliant, because it's such a dark film. It could be David Soul's best recent performance. Anyway, so Stan and Ollie is the closing film, and I cannot wait to see it. Oh, and uh, we almost missed my hot tip. <laughs> we have got a hot tip, and I thought, I think I... No, sorry, it was actually Stan and I that I wanted to talk about. So, yep, so so Rob is now going to whip out his hot tip and waggle it all over the podcast. It, 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 did, it didn't make my, my 15, because I don't really know how to rank this one, but I've heard that Madeline's Madeline is incredibly good. It is a indie film described as a woozy roller coaster about a uh, a 16-year-old uh, with mental health issues who is uh, who becomes an, a member of an experimental theater troupe uh, and whose mental state starts to break down when she's encouraged to mine in- inspiration from her real life wow yeah I'll, and I'll and <laughs> Ryan Johnson was shouting about it on Twitter and various other people whom I respect and uh, apparently Decker's film is directed, directed by Josephine Decker will leave your pulse racing and your mind reeling wow okay so I'll take that as a Good recommendation to go and see that. And it's one of those that is 
probably not going to get a, a wide release unless some unless it breaks out. So this could be, you know, there are a lot of films here. We're going to see a lot of the a lot of the films that we're really excited to see. It's always a bit of a shame because you end up missing stuff that could be really good that you might never get seen get another venue to watch it. Absolutely, there are films that I've seen at the London Film Festival over the years that have never. What were you saying? You were saying earlier. Which one? Um, was it um, Sunset? The one that you said Secret was Sunshine. Sunset, Secret Sunshine. Yes. Yes, that's right. Sunset yeah. being the new film by Laszlo Nemes. That's right. So Secret Sunshine, there was another one. There was a Spanish film I saw. My God, this was so many years ago now. This is, might have been about 1999 or something like that. Called My Mother's a Whore. And it was a Spanish film. It was this really black comedy with this amazing central performance by this woman who just wanted to be nice to everyone and went out of her way to make people's lives a little bit better. But everyone hated it because she was just one of those people that could never portray the right atmosphere or it was just awkward to be around her. And everyone hates her in this movie. And every time she tries to do something, people twist it so it becomes horrible. And it's like, and it should be one of the most depressing things you've ever seen. But it was just such a dark comedy with this amazing central performance. It was so nice in a quite a sad way. But it was, it was one of those films that always stuck with me. And I just never saw it anywhere else. There was another one yeah, called... I was to say, this is one of those films like, oh, Rob, was anyone else there? Yeah, indeed. You, it was, can, you tell, was can, you tell, can you tell me where you saw it? If it's on the inside of your eyelids, that's, right. that's called a dream. And, and, and if yeah. it was a dream, you should really go and speak to someone about, no, about your dreaming if, of it's, film if, called if it's My a, Mother's if, a Whore. If it's, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to say that part. But if it's a dream, you should really write it down because I'd quite like to see that. Yes. Now, unfortunately, I am not clever enough to come up with something like that because it was really well done. And I saw it in NFT3. <laughs> and as far as I'm aware, it never got a release in this country. Another one I saw, which also never got a release, was called Afternoon with a Torturer. God, that was that was a grim old film. That was that was I think it was a South American movie about someone who goes about a political dissident who years and years after he was arrested by the government and tortured goes to meet his torturer, but his torturer and apparently this is all based on true accounts was taken out of an insane asylum because they thought, well, actually, these people will make very, very good torturers. And so it was about this guy who was taken out of an insane asylum and said, you can do anything you want to this person, and was actually encouraged and coerced into torturing this political dissident. And it was really powerful. I only ever saw it once. I don't think it ever got released. Wouldn't rush back to see it, but it was absolutely amazing and was called Afternoon with, with a Torturer. And so, yes. There you go. So... Always happy films at the London Film Festival. <laughs> and yeah, tickets are now available on... Oh, they're, they're, today is September 6th. Uh, they went on sale today for general BFI members. Yep. I believe they go on gen, they go on sale for, for everyone uh, uh, on uh, October the 13th. Sorry, yes. no, sorry, September the 13th. September 13th. By the time October 13th rolls around, we will be into the festival. We will. It starts on the 10th, which is a Wednesday, runs through to the 21st of October, which is a Sunday, and if you want any more info, then go to bfi.org.uk slash LFF. And if you uh, you listen to this and you happen to be going along and you're going to be around, let us know because uh, we're going to be in it for the duration. We're going to be in it well, to win it. <laughs> I will. Yes. And me. Oh, yeah. Apart from when I go away for the final weekend and miss Stan and Ollie. But it'll be fine because I'm going on holiday with some very, very good friends. One of whom is Dave, who always listens. So, Dave, looking forward to that. <laughs> Anyway, so that will be good, and we'll be doing little podcasts during the London Film Festival, so I can rant about Suspiria, or say it's a masterpiece, who knows? Uh, and before, before then, before we are uh, approaching the little podcasts, 
we've got quite a big one coming up. Yes, indeed we do. So it's this is the 49th episode of the Electric Shadows podcast. So thank you, Rob, for 49 episodes. 49 episodes. Thank you, Rob. I, it's, uh, yeah, back in, was it November 2016? No, we did the first one in... February 2016. February, jeez. Yeah, no, because obviously it was the winter of, winter of the Western. I thought That's it was right. the... So we've been doing it for two years. And that, that, was, uh, that was over. And that was um, Bone Tomahawk, The Hateful Eight. Yeah, that's right. There was, there was a Westerns all got released at once, didn't they? Um, I must go back and listen to that one. Craig S. Sala, uh, um, whose film um, Braun Subbot 99 played... LFF last year has a new has his second film after that coming out which is called Dread Across Concrete which sadly isn't playing LFF, LFF this year no that's right which is a bit of a shame it's the third film isn't it because Bone Tom was yeah. first anyway so it'll be the 50th so we will have a 50th episode special and uh, yeah so I'm quite looking forward to that one actually yeah we you know all the old doctors are coming back and... yes that's right <laughs> all the old doctors are coming back actually yeah we should try and so we've had Ian and Angela I don't think we've had anyone else on the podcast have we it's just them two um so yes, but anyway, we should get voice cameos just, by them. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Oh, that's, yeah, that's not a bad idea. So, uh, so yes, it'll be a fiftieth anniversary special. We'll try and keep it under four hours. It will be under four hours. It will be under two hours. Don't worry. But anyway, so thank you for listening to this. We hope if you can get along to London Film Festival, you see some decent films too. I think I can safely say we are both looking forward to seeing what it has to offer this year. I think you can safely say that. And we'll speak to you again soon. Speak to you again soon. Lovely. Delete. <laughs> <laughs>